Father, we uh, thank you for all the ways that you uh, provide for us, sustain us, carry us along. We thank you for your word that shines as a light in a dark place, particularly as we think about the, the twisted and dark generation that we find ourselves in the middle of. And so we pray that everything we do here will help us and equip us and encourage us uh, to be lights who represent the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus and all that we do. And so we ask all these things for His great namesake. Amen. I think last week, y'all, we left off uh, 13, 34, 35, the end of chapter 13. We're going to be getting into chapter 14 today. Um, just, just by way of review, a couple of things. We are in the section, we're in your notes. Uh, this is the bottom of page uh, 26. R- really, we'll be starting at the top of page 27 if you're writing things down and trying to take notes. Um, so we're right on those pages, 26, 27 in your notes. And in the larger picture of Luke, we are in what's often called the journey narrative. Uh, at the end of chapter 9, if you remember, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And he is headed toward Jerusalem. And uh, there in 9, um, 951, where he makes that statement, it says he's headed toward Jerusalem where he's going to be taken up. And, of course, that's looking to the ascension that's going to come. And uh, with that in mind, I just want to remind you of something that we talked about a couple of times last semester. I don't think I've mentioned it again here. You know, the larger, larger picture, Luke and Acts, um, the, the form that Luke writes in, a lot of scholars believe it is what the ancients would refer to as a history. And the way they would write a history was a little bit different from, say, a biography. You know, a biography would focus on an individual and important sayings that they had done. A history is different in that it, it focuses, it, it can focus on an individual, but the primary focus is to say, hey, something has happened in history that is so significant that if you don't understand this, you're going to miss the meaning of history, right? That's what a history seeks to do. And so what Luke and Acts do for us is as a history, they point us to, and you remember we've talked about this before, the kind of the scene in Luke and Acts, the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts, is the death, burial, resurrection, and really the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. And so uh, in this section that we're in, we're moving toward those events, those history-altering events. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll see more significance placed on those as we get closer and closer to them. Uh, but, but also within that history, uh, if it is a person that has significantly changed history, those histories will include you know, things they've done in their life, uh, great accomplishments, their teaching, if they were a teacher. And so here in this journey narrative, we are, uh, Luke has given us these, these core teachings that Jesus gave that defines what it means to be uh, his disciple. And it also defines what God is doing in the world, His, his mission, His work. And so uh, last week as we left off in uh, chapter 13, uh, Jesus had told a couple of parables. Uh, the parable of the barren fig tree, the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, and these are all related to the spread of the kingdom. And then at the end of chapter 13, He had said, uh, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able 
And then uh, 1330, he says, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Uh, and then uh, at the end, uh, very end of the chapter, we'll pick up 34, 35. He had given uh, this lament. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that one statement really sets up uh, where we're headed here. As Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, it's very clear that they are going to reject him, right? That the nation, uh, by and large as a whole, is ultimately going to reject him as their Messiah and so forth. And just like they've killed the prophets who have come before Jesus, so they're going to kill him as well. Uh, but a couple of things in that. Notice Jesus' desire has been to gather the people, right? As a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Um, this is one of those places where we see uh, Jesus or, or God uh, presented in very female terms, right? very feminine terms, um, which is kind of interesting, um, odd seemingly, but not really. Um, so here, in, in, when he talks about a hen that gathers a brood under her wings, you, you think of the passages in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, let, let me give you a couple of things. Y'all can go back and look. And I'm, I'm going to give you the whole psalm. But Psalm 17, Psalm 36, and Psalm 57. So these are all psalms. 17, 36, 57. Those all have images of... Um, the Lord's protection being like under the wings of a bird, right? An eagle, a hen, whatever it may be. Um, I remember when I was in seminary, um, one of the prophets I had, he had, he had lived in Oregon most of his life, and they had a farm as well. And he said one year they had a, a terrible fire, and the, the whole barn burned down. And when they, were, when they were uncovering the rubble and whatnot, they found a mother hen completely burned up and she had burned up with all of her chicks underneath her trying to protect her chicks right in other words she was not going to leave those chicks in there you know uh right to the end and so you know you, you get this image of care and concern right and jesus desire listen i've been calling to y'all and this is the critical statement but you were not willing right uh israel's rejection of jesus is not for the lack of him trying right to get them to come to him, but they're not willing to listen to him. And so we're, we're going to see that amp up as we go along. And ultimately, it's, it's going to come to this. Notice verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, uh, just a little bit later in Luke, y'all, y'all know on the day that he rides into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, the so-called triumphal entry. The people are going to be streaming out of Jerusalem and they're going to be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But blessed is the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but here, this statement that Jesus makes probably is a little bit more prophetic in the sense of um, the, the people of Israel in their rejection of him. They're not going to see him as he truly is until they say as a whole, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And um, 
my view is, is that that really doesn't happen until the end of this present age. When uh, Paul in the book of Romans talks about that the Redeemer will return to Zion and remove godlessness from Jacob. Uh, and then that's when they'll accept him. So, um, so that, that's something that's a little bit future uh, forward uh, looking. And I'm going to come back to that because there's a whole section in Luke, um, like in Matthew, like in Mark, where Jesus talks about the last days. He talks about some issues related to eschatology. And, and in Luke's version, he includes mainly the parts where Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Because as y'all know, uh, this where he says, verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. Uh, you know, it's, it's really significant that Jesus is going to be crucified around A.D. 30. And then by A.D. 70, some 40 years later, Israel is going to be wiped off the face of the map again by the Romans. Temple is going to be destroyed, city burnt up, leveled. Uh, and so Jesus is already warning them, and he will continue to warn them as we uh, go, go forward. That, that, man, I would have drawn you all in, but you weren't willing. You, you weren't willing to come and come under my protection. Uh, so we'll, we'll see all those themes developed as we go forward from here, just like we've seen with these other themes that, uh, that Luke will introduce and then develop as he goes along. Now, any questions or comments on that before we get into chapter 14? Look around. Uh, all right, chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to do just a little bit of, of um, big overview here in some of this. These are, these are all um, texts that we know. In fact, we'll just read through them, and then I'll make a, just a few comments. So chapter 14, verse 1, it says, uh, now, one Sabbath. And let, let me just go ahead and say, before we get into here, this is the... Um, I think, let me, let me look at my notes. I want to make sure. Yeah, this is the last of the Sabbath controversies that we have in Luke. If you remember, uh, there have been a lot of big deal things that happen on a Sabbath, uh, where, particularly where Jesus heals. And the fer- scribes, the Pharisees, wait a minute, say, you can't heal on the Sabbath, right? You shouldn't do that. It's not law. We, we saw one of those episodes last week in chapter 13. This is the last of these um, you know, run-ins he has with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And you see that right here at the beginning. Verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Now on uh, one Sabbath, when he went to, di- went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, notice how Jesus is always, he's always hanging out with the Pharisees, right? Just like he's been hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors. They invite him to dinner. And probably they invite him to dinner to trap him in something, right? That's, you know, that's what's indicated here. They were watching him carefully, right? Uh, but he, he doesn't say, no, y'all are all messed up. I ain't going to hang out with y'all. He, Jesus is hanging out with everybody, right? Uh, he's giving everybody a fair shake. Verse 2. Um, so notice the setup. He goes to eat <laughs> supper. It's on the Sabbath. And behold... There was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think that guy's there at that dinner that night? Did, did he just happen to be there? I guarantee you this is a setup, right? <laughs> Let's see what he does with this guy, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because dropsy, dropsy is, um, y'all probably know dropsy is, is uh, basically where you have got a fluid buildup, you know, in your body. And it results in swelling and discomfort and all kind of things. Uh, but the Pharisees, they would have labeled this 
as one of the diseases that made somebody unclean. You know, this is somebody who is outcast. And it's also, uh, it's also in, in the list of things in the law, uh, if, if this is the same thing, and I, th- I think it is, that would have made somebody ceremonially uh, unclean, that they couldn't take part in the festivals and the, and the worship and so forth. So this is somebody, again, who's on the outcast. So let's see. All right, so here's the guy. It's the setup. Verse 3. Now Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> now, see, now that tells me Jesus knows this is a setup, right? He doesn't heal the guy first. He says, oh, I see what's going on here. I, I, okay, I got it. So let me ask y'all a question. Right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, th- this is the really inter- interesting thing. We've had these controversies all the way back to chapter 4. There's two in chapter 4, one in chapter 6, one we just had in chapter 13. This is the last one in chapter 14. And this is the same question that has come up every time. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus says, yes. It's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. I mean, it's, it's nonsense to, to think it wouldn't be lawful to heal on the Sabbath, right? Uh, so he's laid that out for him. Also, the, in the very first big controversy, well, it's really the second controversy we have over this. Um, it's when the disciples are eating the grain, remember, on the Sabbath. They're walking through the field and they're, they're uh, getting some of the grain and they're rubbing off the chaff with their hands and they're eating it. And the Pharisees say, oh, how dare you do that? That's working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. He ties into him. And at the end, he says, and by the way, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? I get to make the rules about what the Sabbath is about. (laughs) Me, right? (laughs) So, you know, here's the guy who made the rules about the Sabbath. And uh, he's asking him the question, is it lawful? Now, look at verse four. Now, they remain silent because, right, they know, oh, Lord, he's got us. They're just, you know. The, the poor Pharisees, they try and try. You know, they are, they are literally insane, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting the different result. Same thing. They're just trying to trap him, trying to trap him on this Sabbath issue here. And they don't get it, right? So they're silent because I think they realize, oh, Lord, he's got us on this one. Uh, then, he, then he took the man and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox has fallen into a well on a Sabbath? They will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now, that's just, man, that's, that's third grade Sunday school stuff right there, right? If you've got somebody that's in danger, a son or, or, or an animal that's fallen into a well, you're going to tell me you're going to let that person drown on the Sabbath? That's crazy. Right? And so they don't know how to answer him. Um, and that's the last controversy. Um, they could not reply to these things. One of the things that you see in all the Gospels is that as the, the scribes and the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and Mar, uh, Matthew, uh-oh, uh, <laughs> uh, Sadducees and Matthew, they're all trying to, to trap Jesus and they fail one time after another, you know, and so... Uh, here, and in all those episodes, they just wind up being silent. They couldn't reply to any of these things. They, they, they don't know how to answer what's going on. So we see that going forward. And uh, this is going to, again, we, we haven't gotten quite to the end of what's going to happen in Luke, but we're amping up toward that. Um, and so right on the heels of that, verse 7, he tells a parable. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited uh, when he noticed how they chose places of honor. 
So, right, so he's, now this is still in the Pharisee's house. He's been there for dinner. And they've all come in and they've taken their seats. And he sees how they're, they're, they're seated. And verse 8, he says, listen, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin uh, with the shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Verse 11, this is the main point. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that's just a little, that's one of Jesus' central teachings, right? And he gives this parable to illuminate it. Um, What's one of the key hallmarks of a disciple of Jesus? Humility, right? Uh, All the way through. Right? If you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, well, you've got to have a good sense of humility before you can do that. Right? Um, in Philippians, right? have this mind in yourselves, which is also that of Christ. Um, and he defines what Christ-like humility is there. Right? Don't think of yourself higher than you ought to, all those kind of things. So here, that's that little nuclear, nuclear statement there. Everyone exalts himself will be humbled. And who who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, again, that, that ties in, if you look at the uh, middle of chapter 13, last week, 13, verse 30. Another one of those these uh, uh, completely um, countercultural inverted statements that, that subvert expectations. 13.30 said, Behold, some who are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. All right, so again, he's... he's Speaking counter to all these expectations about who's going to be where and who's going to do what. Then he gives another parable back in 1412. Uh, he said also to the man who had invited him. Uh, uh, this is my favorite one right here. Uh, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Lest they also re- uh, invite you in return and you be repaid. Instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. Ah, Look at that. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does his kingdom look like? It looks like extravagant generosity where you give and you bless others without any hope of being repaid. And that is the blessing in and of itself. Now, let me just remind you of something. Y'all remember early on Jesus talked about not only have I got some new wine, <laughs> you're going to have to have a whole new wine skin. Right? You're going to have to have a whole new mental container. You're going to have to have a whole new mindset to understand what I'm about to be teaching y'all. And this is part of it, right? Um, man, and, you know, I read these things and in 2023, right, 2,000 years later after Jesus, I still think how countercultural all of these things are, Right? You know, human nature drives to do exactly opposite what Jesus talks about here. Um, and, and then he adds this. Just, okay, if you didn't get that, look, look at his last sentence. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Right? Don't look to get repaid now. You'll get repaid at the resurrection of, of the just, of the righteous when that happens. Right? So it's something that's going to happen on out there. Um, 
Now, they should have just left it alone. But uh, verse 15 keeps on going. He says, now, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, now, let me just say, we, we, um, I gave you a handout about the kingdom several weeks back. And you don't have to pull that out. But it's got all the references to the kingdom, or not, not every one of them, but almost all of the significant ones that are in Luke and Acts. If there was anything that was repeated, I don't think I put that in there. But it's got the most significant references to the kingdom in Luke and Acts. And as we get to the end of Luke, I'm going to bring a lot of this back up again. But this issue of the kingdom has been uh, kind of simmering in the background all the way through. And the kingdom is going to come forward the further we get into the, at, to the end of Luke. And it's really going to become a focus as we get into the book of Acts. Uh, so here, the issue of the kingdom comes up. And notice he says, blessed is everyone who will eat uh, bread in the kingdom of God. And um, within that, I also gave you a handout. There's some extra back on the table before I forget to mention it. Uh, and it's just an um, encyclopedia article on this idea called the Messianic Banquet. And the reason I wanted you to have that is all these references to the kingdom and uh, the way Jesus talks about the kingdom, the way the scribes and the Pharisees understood the kingdom, is that the, the, the kingdom is going to be first and foremost a great party that the righteous are invited to, right? And uh, the, the primary, let me, let, me just t- let me just read one little snippet. One of the primary places that that idea comes from is in Isaiah 25. Uh, some of you may know that Isaiah 25, 24, uh, 24, 25, 26 is kind of the, uh, it's, it's Isaiah's version of the book of Revelation, really. Uh, it's, it's about the coming of the day of the Lord and the coming of the kingdom and the... Um, Everything that's going to happen in that in that in that context, and so uh, let me just read a little snippet. This is Isaiah twenty five, um, Isaiah twenty five verse one. Let me just start there, and, and I'll jump jump around just a little bit. But Isaiah twenty five one, seeing so here the context, Isaiah says, "O Lord," and that's in all caps. So that's the name Yahweh. O Yahweh, you are my God, and I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plan, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So what Isaiah is talking about are plans that are going to be fulfilled that had been set in motion from of old. But God is faithful and his plans are sure, right? Verse 2, for you have made the city a heap and, a, and the fortified city a ruin. A foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. This is exactly what Jesus has been teaching on, right? Uh, The Lord is a stronghold for the poor. He's a stronghold for the needy in distress. The wicked try to breathe against the people, right? Try to destroy them, but the Lord is their shelter. Verse 5, you subdue the noise of of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Now, uh, let me just say that in 
verse chapter 24. I didn't start there. Uh, that one starts pretty dark. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 24, if I could summarize it this way, it's, uh, this is the gap. This is the gap in between <laughs> Revelation, the last verse in Revelation 19 and the first verse in Revelation 20. And first verse in Revelation 20 is, now uh, the earth and the heavens had departed and no place was found for them, right? Uh, at the end of chapter 19, we'd had this judgment scene. Isaiah 24 is the uh, 20, um, yeah, 24 is the gap in between there where the Lord has destroyed everything. All the cities, all the power of man, everything has been completely laid waste. Uh, nothing remains, right? And so as his judgment has fallen, chapter 25 comes, and in the midst of that destruction, you, uh, we get this message of hope. And so verse 6, he says this. This is Isaiah 25, 6. He says, now on this mountain, and this is the context of Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the last thing that Isaiah had mentioned at the end of chapter 24, uh, where the Lord will come and reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before all of his elders. Uh, and so Isaiah says, on this mountain, on Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or of rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. And there he will swallow up on that mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is Yahweh we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation for the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain Moab will be trampled down in his place a straw is trampled down in a dunghill and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But Yahweh will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, uh, to the dust. So here uh, you can go read 24, 25, 26 of, of Isaiah. But and at the center of all this, you know, the Lord judging all of his enemies. And bringing them to nothing. There's this idea that on Mount Zion, he's going to throw this huge feast, right? A feast uh, that he'll make for all the peoples. You see that? Verse 6, Isaiah 25, 6. A host, uh, a, a, a big celebration for all the peoples. And we find out later in some of the Old Testament prophets, but particularly in the book of Revelation, that when that celebration begins, the people who are going to be there are from every nation, tribe, language, people group on earth. They're all going to gather together on Mount Zion. It's going to be a huge celebration, right? The best wine you can possibly think of, right? Meat with the marrow still in it. Now, we don't think in those terms much anymore, right? But, you know, good, uh, you know, in the South, it's iced tea and pulled pork barbecue, right? You think about that, same thing. You know, if you grew up Baptist, you can just cut, you can just cut the wine out. I know, you know. Uh, Methodists, all us Methodists be drinking wine. Y'all all can do whatever else you want to. Y'all can have the grape juice, you know. Big party, right? 
No, this is this is something else. I think. Yeah, this is just the this is the celebration. Now, the wedding feast may be part of it, but right now it seems to be just a, a general feast. So, as as Jesus um, as Jesus talks about this, and he starts to talk about these dinners and banquets, just kind of have that in the back of your mind. Uh, so, back in Luke fourteen sixteen, and the reason I went into that is that uh, that is clearly in the background of what Jesus talks about here. Uh, because the guy, the Pharisee, has just mentioned the kingdom. How blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so then Jesus tells this parable, verse 16. So Jesus said to him, a, a, man's once, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. <laughs> The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me uh, excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please let me be excused. And another said, I just married my wife and I can't come. Right. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, well, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Y'all see where this is going, right? Uh, All the unworthy people, right? And let me just say this, the the Pharisees do something that... um, that all religious people do, right? And, and now I'm going to say something, y'all know how I am. But Jesus absolutely hates religion. And he hates the religious. Because what religion generally tends to boil down into are man-made rules and edicts and church constitutions and church bylaws that have nothing whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God. And often become a hindrance for people to see the reality of the kingdom of God, right? Uh, Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to bring in a kingdom as a king, right? And so that means he as the king, what he desires is worship and adoration and obedience, and right? All these things that a Lord does, a, a king does, right? And so that's the very nature of the kingdom uh, and the king that's in it. So here, this kingdom has been offered. And remember... Just earlier, when the uh, scribes and Pharisees had accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil, he said, listen, uh, that doesn't make any sense. And, And instead, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then that means the kingdom has come upon you. Right. So so all of this takes place in this context of Jesus has come as the king and he's offering the kingdom to the people. He's giving them a taste of the kingdom. And those who are religious, they miss it altogether because they've got their rules and their bylaws and their constitutions that don't represent the kingdom. So when the kingdom comes, they don't even know it's looking them right in the face, right? And so when they reject Jesus, who does he go to? Well, let's go get everybody else, the poor, crippled, blind, the lame. And this is, and this is what the religious always do. The religious cut off the kingdom from everybody they don't like. And they make the rules to fit them so it makes it easier for them to get in. Right? But as we just read in Isaiah, the kingdom is for the crippled and the blind and the lame. Right? Back to him quoting Jesus, quoting from Isaiah when he begins his ministry. Uh, I have come to give sight to the blind, to release the captives. Right? 
to set to set free the prisoners, right? Uh, the healing and things that he's doing. So here, those who have shut the kingdom off from others, they don't want to enter into it themselves, or at least come to the banquet. And so now it's open to all these others. So verse 22, it says, Now the servant said, Sir, what you commanded me has been done. And there's still plenty of room. <laughs> right? Uh, 23, So the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. Verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, what did that Pharisee just said? Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus is telling them, listen, if you reject me, if you reject what I'm saying, you're not going to eat bread nowhere, right? This thing's going to be cut off from you. And in fact, everybody that y'all don't think is worthy to get into the kingdom, right? They're going to get in ahead of you. He's going to tell several more parables like this, right? And and as we know... um, that's the way Jesus' ministry works. One of my favorite passages is in 1 Corinthians. Um, now, let me tell you, if, you, if you're not humble yet, um, and uh, you read this passage and you think what Paul is saying here, uh, you think, oh, oh, oh okay, uh, I got it. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is talking about, he's, he's starting to talk about the foolishness of the cross. Um, and the fact that, you know, what we are preaching in Christ, uh, it's utter foolish, foolishness to those who think they're wise and so forth. Uh, the Jews look for signs, Greek look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. First um, Corinthians one twenty four. he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, right? Uh, so this whole plan that God's working out looks like utter foolishness to people who are on the outside, right? This is something that I, that I talk about a lot with people that are, you know, really interfacing with our culture. And that is, if people, well, I think we as Christians have to realize that what we, what we are preaching, it sounds like utter nonsense, right? Because from the world's perspective, it is. Utter nonsense. You're telling me God became a human and then died and then was resurrected, right? And then ascended back into heaven? I mean, it doesn't get any wilder than that, right? <laughs> uh, but then Paul says this. Um, now think about this. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Now I want you to consider your calling, brothers and sisters. There were not many of you wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And the reason is so that no human might boast in his presence. And so because of him, because of Father God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Why are we believers? Why are we followers of Jesus? Because we're the foolish. (laughs) We're those who have no power. We are the nobodies who don't mean nothing to everybody else, right? 
Those are the type of people that God is calling in His kingdom. And this is the, and this is the thing. You've got to have a, a certain level of childish stupidity to get into the kingdom. To trust Jesus. Because He talks like a crazy person. Right? His teachings are almost incomprehensible at some point. Right? But this is the thing. Even when we don't understand Him, we're just stupid enough to say, well, He's the only one that's making some kind of sense. Right? That's really all it takes. As a good friend of mine says, this ain't rocket surgery going on in it, right? When you get it right down, it's fairly simple. And so the, these parables uh, are, are meant to show that, y'all, look, this is, this is not hard. But the problem is you don't want to enter in, right? And the, and the people, notice all the people in this parable, they give one excuse after another. Here comes the kingdom and the banquet and the celebration. Well, I don't have time for that. Got got some oxen out here. Just got married, right? Most important thing you can be invited to, and yet you come up with all these excuses, right? And that's the same thing the Pharisees are doing. Uh, you know, it becomes clear as we get to the end of Luke that that Jesus has given enough evidence that he is who he claims to be, and the Pharisees don't believe in him not because he hasn't hasn't given them reason to. They don't believe in him because they don't want to, right? As he says. I've called you, but you're not willing. Now, let me. whenever I teach my materials on worldview, this is a really hard pill for people to swallow. And, you know, and this applies to us, too. And we have to think critically about it. And, and at first I say it, and you're going to think, well, that, that, that can't be right. Cause da, da, da. But this is, this is the reality. Everybody believes what they believe in large part because they want to believe it. Everybody. Right? Everybody. There is a part of us that believes that Jesus is true because we want that to be true. You understand what I'm saying? Now, the good thing about Jesus is he gives us evidence to show that it's right, that that's good to trust in him because he is true. But there is a, there is a great push in us to want those things to be true. I was, I was, I was talking to, a, a, there's a guy that I'm, I'm uh, uh, working through our Milk to Meat discipleship study with. We meet on Monday afternoons. And uh, we, were, we were talking about the reality of the gospel and all. And he said, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, uh, he was at some church function and somebody had shared the gospel. And he said, uh, the guy was, he kept on asking me, he wasn't trying to push me. But he said, do you understand the things we're talking about? And do you want to commit yourself to these things? And he said, I knew that I wanted to commit myself to it. And he said, even as I was doing it, I felt like it was kind of a, just like jumping off into the dark. I wasn't sure everything that I was committing myself to. He said, but, but now that I've thought back on it, this was the thing that made all the difference. He said, it gave me hope. All right? I didn't understand everything that was going on, but whatever that guy was saying, it gave me hope. And at that point in my life, I was hopeless. Yeah. I just felt like I was rambling around, you know, didn't have any direction. And, and, and this is what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus is offering hope to these people. And they don't believe him. They won't follow him. Not because he's not offering these things. It's because they don't want to see these things. They're not willing to come to him and submit themselves humbly to him. And so they make all kinds of excuses about why they can't do this and can't do that. So where does the kingdom go? It goes to all those who don't deserve it. <laughs> right. Uh, that's what I love about these parables. Um, and and this, is the, um, you know, this is the thing about the kingdom. The only people who can make it into the kingdom are the people who don't deserve it, who have no natural qualifications to get into it. 
Right? That's always the case. They're, they're, do you think that Peter and James and John were more righteous than the, than the Pharisees? Right? Paul in Philippians says about himself that when he was a Pharisee, he says, now listen, according to the righteousness that is through the law, I was blameless. Right? Now, I'm assuming that through the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul is not just saying something that's not true. Right? Paul knows himself. Right? And what he's saying is, is that, yeah, if it's about keeping the law and doing that, you could find no fault with me whatsoever. But even in doing that, I missed God's plan for me altogether. Right? There is a form of righteousness, self-righteousness, that can lead you far astray from the kingdom. Right? This is, this, this is what the Pharisees show us time and time again. Right? And, and by the way, this is something that I don't think we preach in the church enough, you know, pushing people back to a, a humble acceptance of we are where we are, not because we're smart, not because we're wise, not because we're powerful. No, we are where we are because we didn't deserve any of this. And it was through Jesus' grace and calling us in, right? And so these, these, all these parables amplify uh, the mercy and the grace of God in some way or another. And then immediately he's going to tack that on with some, with some fairly hard teaching here in just a second. Now, anybody, questions or comments on any of that section there? The great thing that I'm looking forward to is we're going to be able to eat delicious food and we're not going to gain weight doing it. Right? <laughs> Praise Jesus. Listen, if there's no other reason to believe in Jesus, just start there, right? Just, you know, just start with, you know... I don't want to miss out on the party where we really get to get all the good stuff, you know. One of the great consequences of the fall is that everything that's delicious will kill you, right? Ruined everything. Man, to heck with that. I can't wait to punch Adam right in the mouth when I see him. 1425, let's, let's, let's jump into this. Oh, boy, here we go. Now, look at this. Here we go. Now, now remember, Jesus has just been talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And now we get an episode where he starts to talk to the crowds which is, you know, he's always doing that a little bit differently uh, than the way he talks to the disciples in private. And, and, he's, and he's a little bit more, um, a little bit more terse with, with the crowds because he's drawing a very sharp line in the sand. So verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Oh, man, what? Really? Oh, we were going so good, Jesus, right? You're welcome us into the kingdom over here. But now again, remember, he's talking to the crowds here, right? And these are the crowds probably that have come. They've heard about his healings. They've heard about his teachings, right? So they're here for all different purposes, 
right? Because we as, as humans, man, we like a free lunch, right? We like to, you right, we like to get the free stuff, but we don't like the stuff that compels us to some form of responsibility, right? So here, as Jesus talks to these crowds, he's now raising this issue. And, and y'all know, let me just say that, that that word disciple, it just means student, right? If, and Jesus presents himself as a rabbi in, in Luke, right, as a teacher that's teaching people in the way of the kingdom. And so here, uh, he gives these dividing lines. He says, if any, all right, unless you hate everybody else, well, you can't be my disciple. Now, this, this goes back to what Jesus had said a little bit earlier uh, in, in several places. Um, and, and, well, and, I mean, we can go all over the place, but uh, one of the first times that he said this in a, in a more, um, in a more, a, a softer way, I guess we could say, is with Mary and Martha. Um, chapter 10, verses 41 and 42, where Martha, you remember Martha's busy trying to get all the food and everything together. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, listening to him teach. And uh, Martha wants Jesus to say, hey, tell Mary to come here and help me. 41 and 42, uh, the Lord says to Martha, 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 you're anxious and troubled about so many things, but there's only one thing that's necessary. There's only one thing that's necessary. And then he goes on to say, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Right? The one thing that's necessary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, right? learning his teaching. But then as we go forward from there, he makes these really, uh, and, you know, and these are amped up statements to drive the point home. And that is, you can't let anybody have priority over me. Right? I have to be first in all things. You, you can't love your mother more than you love me. Now, he's not saying, right? Uh, and, and again, he uses this language of hate, which comes out of the Old Testament, right? And he's clearly, he's not talking about a literal hate here, right? But he's given this hyperbolic language to show how significant his uh, primary role in everything is. Right? Uh, in Colossians 1, where Paul has that great hymn about Jesus, right? Everything was created by him, through him, and for him, right? He is the creator of all things. And then it says that uh, he is also the firstborn among the dead, the head of the church. And he talks about these other things that Christ has done. And then one of the last things that he says at the end is, it says, uh, all of this is so, so that he might be first in all things, Right? Jesus has to be first in all things. Yes, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is, this is if, if, if I could say it a little bit more soft, what Jesus is saying is, you can't love anybody more than you love me. Right? And in fact, you have to love me so supremely that even your love for other people looks like hate. Right? right? So there's a vast gulf. In between those, and, and and the reason we know that's what he's saying is that later he's you know he's going to teach so much on loving one another, right? That we have to love our brothers and sisters, right? He's even going to tell parables about uh, you know the Pharisees who who don't take care of their parents and they've tithed their money so they don't have to give their you know their money to their parents in their old age. And Jesus says that's that's nonsense, right? So clearly, yeah, he is not talking about a literal form of hate here. I mean, you know, in the larger kind of... This is one of the things that makes Jesus hard to read is that a lot of his uh, teaching is very hyperbolic. It's amped up to make the point, right? To get you to think about it, right? It kind of punches you in the face 
And then you have to sit down and think, oh, well, now what does he really mean by that? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So clearly not, not a literal hate here. And then he, and then he repeats uh, what he had said earlier about taking up the cross. Uh, and, and right, that is a graphic image of dying to yourself. You're going to have to take up your instrument of death and die to yourself. Only by doing that can you be my student. Now, let me show you how this concludes because, man, I think this is fantastic. He goes on in verse 34 and 35 and he says, Listen, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's all thrown away. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, um, in, in the other Gospels, he talks about, and, and Paul uses this language as well, about us disciples, we need to be salt and light. Right? And salt, uh, salt was used for a lot of different things in the first century. It was used for seasoning, like we use it today. It was used as a preservative. It was used to uh, make the soil productive. Right? It was used for a lot of different things. And uh, here, you know, Jesus is saying, uh, if salt has become, if it's, if it's lost its taste, how can you restore it? You can't. It's become useless, right? And so what he's saying here is, if you're not willing to do these things, you're just kind of useless to the kingdom. See that? One of the things that's, that's often said about people who reject the truth, um, and, and Paul does this in Romans where he is, you know, he's kind of leveling the playing field. He says, no, there's not one who is righteous. No, not one. They've all turned aside. They've all gone their own way. And in some of the translations, um, I think they make a disastrous error, and they, they translate a word there as they have all become worthless. And that's not, that's not what the word means in, uh, in Greek. The, the word is useless, right? And, and the reason I say that is, is that every human being has great worth before the Lord God, even, even the sinners, Right? Even the most reprobate people you can think of. That is a person that was created to bear some facet of the glory of their creator. Every human being that's ever existed. Right? So they have great value being part of humanity that represents the infinitely holy God. Right? Great worth there. But when you reject God's purposes for yourself, you become useless. Useless. We, we, we went to see that, uh, the new Avatar movie that came out, you know, the 3D and all that. Oh, Lord, have mercy, man, what an experience that is. But uh, in, in the story, there was a line I thought, oh, man, that is such, such a great line. This one family has had to move to go to another tribe. Uh, they've lived in the forest, and now they're going to this sea-faring culture that they know nothing about. And the king, as he accepts them in, he says, you know, these people are going to be like babies. They're, you know, they can't swim. They don't know how to do anything. And, and, he, and he tells his tribe, uh, we must teach them so that they will not bear the shame of being useless. They will not. And I thought, man, that's such a great line, right? Uh, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you don't follow my teaching, you are completely useless to the kingdom of God. And who wants to bear the shame of being useless, Right? And everything that he talks about kind of moves us in that direction. Uh, now, now, this is, now, this is what I want you to see. Now, think about what he's just said here, right? You cannot be my student unless you make me preeminent and hate your mom and dad and all that, right? You can't be my student unless you take up your cross, right? You can't be my student unless you renounce all that you have. 
You can't let all that material stuff tie you down, right? Now, if you're in the crowd, how are you going to respond to that? I'd be thinking, mm, yeah, that sounds rough. But look at, look at 15.1. I love this. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Wow. Really? After that? And let me tell you why I think that's so. Those folks ain't got nothing to lose. They've already lost everything, right? So they're thinking, well, this cost that Jesus asked me to pay, I'm, I'm already there, <laughs> right? Tax collector. Now, this is the bad thing about a tax collector. Even your own mama hates you, right? So they, he, he ain't got to worry about that. His mom and daddy probably already wrote him off, right? Boy, you want to talk about the shame of being useless. Imagine if one of your children became an IRS agent, right? We would think, oh, no, right? Something's going terribly wrong here. They all know I'm joking when I say that. Um, here, though, the tax collectors, sinners are all drawing near. And then verse 2, and the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Same old thing, right? They still don't get it. After hearing all this, after hearing everything that Jesus has taught. Now, for next week, go ahead and read chapter 15. Chapter 15 is one of the most famous chapters in Luke. Uh, it's got the parable, uh, so-called parable of the prodigal son in it. Uh, I'd rather call this the, uh, the parable of the father and the two sons, because uh, that's more the loving father and the two sons. That, that's more in line with what's going on here. Uh, but if you go and you read chapter 15, let me just summarize what's going on here. Uh, Jesus tells three parables here, and, they're all, uh, and the key word in all these parables is lost. Lost, lost, lost. So, so as you read through chapter 15, notice how many times he says something about being lost. First parable is in verses 3 through 7. And he's, he tells the story of a, uh, of a man, if he has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them, won't he leave the, the hundred to go find the one? And uh, as that one sheep is found, he says, verse 7, uh, underline this is an important statement. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Wow, look at that, right? Um, more joy in heaven. Now, I'll, I'll say more about that next week. Then he tells the parable of the woman that loses a coin. And uh, one coin is just one day's wage, right? Now, that may not seem like a lot unless you're poor. And if you're poor, that's everything, right? So she loses this one coin and uh, she tears the house apart trying to find it. And uh, when she finds it, she goes and tells all of her friends, rejoice with me. I found my coin that I had lost. In verse 10, uh, another key statement. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, you see the key word there? Joy. Joy. Joy in heaven. Joy before the angels of the sinner who repents. And then he's going to tell us a parable about, well, this is, this is, this is y'all know, that this parable is one of Jesus' genius parables. Um, one of the one of the books I read way early on talked about Jesus parables and the guy who wrote the book said that all of Jesus parables have one point one main point and over the years I thought that can't be right this just and uh, the reason I say that is most Jesus parables have multiple layers of meaning just like all narratives do right all stories have multiple layers of meaning and as you can see this parable is a fairly lengthy parable. It goes from 5.11 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 32 there. 
All right, so we got 20-something verses of this parable, and it tells a complete story. And it's a story that has multiple levels and layers to it. And one of the, one of the primary layers of this story is Jesus is going to show us what repentance looks like in this parable. In fact, this parable almost summarizes everything that Jesus has taught up to this point. He, he shows what repentance looks like, what it looks like when a sinner repents. He shows what Father God looks like when a sinner repents and comes back to Him, right? Lost, and now He's found. And then, just to add a little stinger in, He shows what the righteous brother looks like when his other brother is coming back and being welcomed in while he is being pushed on the outside. And it's not because the father is cutting him off. It's because he doesn't want to have anything to do with what the father is doing here. So this, this, this parable really summarizes uh, Jesus' ministry up to this point, And it's kind of going to be a uh, transition into what he starts to talk about next uh, in, in the latter part of this journey narrative. Uh, and if y'all want to, uh, go ahead and read chapter 15 for next week and also chapter 16. And y'all, 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 y'all pray with me. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I have no idea what Jesus is trying to get at in that parable. Now, y'all, y'all, y'all read it for next week. And, and I want to hear what y'all come up with. Because, I, man, I, 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 I am not joking when I say I am not really sure what he is really about on this thing. So we'll talk about that next week uh, as well. Uh, we probably won't get any further than chapter 16. So if you read chapter 15 and 16, uh, I think that's, that's, that's all we'll be able to get through next week. All right, y'all. Now, time. Uh, any questions or comments on any of that before we close out here? Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll, we'll close it out here. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who... Um, we think about him being on earth over 2,000 years ago. And all of these things that he taught and said and did have been written down for us because you knew that 2,000 years later we would be here and we would need to hear these things. And we would need to have access to these truths. Um, and just as we started off the class, these things that we're reading and studying, we have, they have shaped history. They have defined history. They have defined reality. And... Uh, People who reject these truths deny reality itself. Uh, The fact that Jesus is uh, God who became flesh for us and is now sustaining all things by his powerful word. It's all about him. He is preeminent above all things. And so uh, we thank you that you've made us made all of this clear to us that we don't have to uh, uh, wander around wondering what life is all about, but you've uh, revealed these things clearly and freely to us. And so we want to be tender hearted. We want to be humble, uh, like the people, like, like, like the positive examples we see here who, um, accept uh, the Lord's teaching and who, uh, sit at his feet and trust that what he's t- teaching us is true. And so uh, we ask that you'll help us in all the ways that we need help. Uh, lift up all the names that are, that are before us, people who need healing and restoration. Um, also travel, people out traveling this week. Uh, we just pray that you'll give us all what we need as we need it. And that uh, you'll bless us through the deep, rich, personal knowledge that we have of our Lord Jesus. And we ask all this for his great and powerful namesake. Amen.